Part One of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One. The Reverend Thomas Hunter, executed for the murder of his pupils. The case of this criminal, who was executed in the year seventeen hundred, for the barbarous murder of his two pupils, the children of a gentleman named Gordon an eminent merchant and a bailey or alderman of the city of edinburgh is the first on our record and certainly for its atrocity deserves to be placed at the head of the list of offences which follows its melancholy recital from the title of the offender it will be seen that he was a preacher of the word of god and that a person in his situation in life should suffer so ignominious an end for such a crime is indeed extraordinary but how much more horrible is the fact which is related to us that on the scaffold when all hope of life and of repentance was past he expressed his disbelief in that god whom it was his profession to uphold and whose omnipotence it had been his duty to teach the malefactor it would appear was born of most respectable parents his father being a rich farmer in the county of fife and at an early age he was sent to the university of st andrews for his education his success in the pursuit of classical knowledge soon enabled him to take the degree of Master of Arts, and his subsequent study of divinity was attended with as favourable results. Upon his quitting college, in accordance with the practice of the time, he entered the service of Mr. Gordon, in the capacity of chaplain, in which situation it became his duty to instruct the sons of his employer, children, respectively, of the ages of eight and ten years. The family consisted of Mr. and Mrs. Gordon, the two boys, their sister, a girl younger than themselves, Mr. Hunter, a young woman who attended upon Mrs. Gordon, and the usual menial servants. The attention of Hunter was attracted by the comeliness of the lady's maid, and a connection of a criminal nature was soon commenced between them. The accidental discovery of this intrigue by the three children was the ultimate cause of the deliberate murder of two of them by their tutor. The young woman and Hunter had retired to the apartment of the latter, but having omitted to fasten the door, the children entered and saw enough to excite surprise in their young minds. In their conversation subsequently at meal-time, they said so much as convinced their parents of what had taken place, and the servant-girl was instantly dismissed, while the chaplain, who had always been considered to be a person of mild and amiable disposition, and of great genius, was permitted to remain, upon his making such amends to the family as were in his power, by apologising for his indiscretion. From this moment, however, an inveterate hatred for the children arose in his breast, and he determined to satisfy his revenge upon them by murdering them all. Chance for some time marred his plans, but he was at length enabled to put them into execution, as regarded the two boys. It appears that he was in the habit of taking them to walk in the fields before dinner, and the girl on such occasions usually accompanied them but at the time at which the murder of her brothers was perpetrated she was prevented from going with them they were at the country seat of mr gordon situated at a short distance only from edinburgh and an invitation having been received for the whole family to dine in that city mrs gordon desired that all the children might accompany her and her husband the latter however opposed the execution of this plan and the little girl only was permitted to go with her parents the intention of the murderer to destroy all the children was by this means frustrated, but he still persevered in his bloody purpose with regard to the sons of his benefactor, whom he determined to murder while they were yet in his power. 
Proceeding with them, in their customary walks, they all sat down together to rest. But the boys soon quitted their tutor to catch butterflies and to gather wild flowers which grew in abundance around them. Their murderer was at that moment engaged in preparing the weapon for their slaughter, and presently calling them to him, he reprimanded them for disclosing to their parents the particulars of the scene which they had witnessed, and declared his intention to put them to death. Terrified by this threat, they ran from him, but he pursued and overtook them, and then throwing one of them on the ground, and placing his knee on his chest, he soon dispatched his brother by cutting his throat with a penknife. This first victim, disposed of, he speedily completed his fell purpose with regard to the child whose person he had already secured. The deed, it will be observed, was perpetrated in open day, and it would have been remarkable, indeed, if, within half a mile of the chief city of Scotland, there had been no human eye to see so horrible an act. A gentleman, who was walking on the Castle Hill, had a tolerable view of what passed, and immediately ran to the spot where the deceased children were lying, giving the alarm as he went along, in order that the murderer might be secured. The latter, having accomplished his object, proceeded towards the river to drown himself, but was prevented from fulfilling his intention, and having been seized, he was soon placed in safe custody, intelligence of the frightful event being meanwhile conveyed to the parents of the unhappy children. The prisoner was within a few days brought to trial, under the old Scottish law, by which it was provided that a murderer, being found with the blood of his victim on his clothes, should be prosecuted in the sheriff's court, and executed within three days. The frightful nature of the case rendered it scarcely uncharitable to pursue a law so vigorous according to its letter, and a jury having been accordingly impanelled, the prisoner was brought to trial, and pleaded guilty, adding the horrible announcement of his regret that Miss Gordon had escaped from his revenge. The sentence of death was passed upon the culprit by the sheriff, but it was directed to be carried into effect with the additional terms that the prisoner should first have his right hand struck off, that he should be then drawn up to the gibbet, erected near the locality of the murder, by a rope, and after that execution he should be hanged in chains between Edinburgh and Leith, the weapon of destruction being passed through his hand, which should be advanced over his head and fixed to the top of the gibbet. The sentence, barbarous as it may now appear, was carried into full execution on the 22nd of August, 1700, and frightful to relate, he who in life had professed to be a teacher of the gospel, on his scaffold, declared himself to be an atheist. His words were, There is no God, or if they be, I hold him in defiance. The body of the executed man, having been at first suspended in chains according to the precise terms of his sentence, was subsequently, at the desire of Mr. Gordon, removed to the outskirts of the village of Broughton, near Edinburgh. Alexander Balfour, convicted of murder. The case of this criminal is worthy of some attention, from the very remarkable circumstances by which it was attended. The subject of this sketch was born in 1687, at the seat of his father, Lord Burley, near Kinross, and having studied successively at Orwell, near the place of his birth, and at St. Andrews, so successfully as to obtain considerable credit, he returned home, being intended by his father to join the army of the Duke of Marlborough, then in Flanders. Here he became enamoured of Miss Robertson, the governess of his sisters, however, and in order to break off the connection, he was sent to make the tour through France and Italy, the young lady being dismissed from the house of her patron. Balfour, before his quitting Scotland, 
declared his intention, if ever the young lady should marry, to murder her husband, but deeming this to be merely an empty threat, she was, during his absence, united to a Mr. Syme, with whom she went to live at Inverkeithing. On his return to his father's house, he learned this fact, and immediately proceeded to put his threat into execution. Mrs. Syme, on seeing him, remembering his expressed determination, screamed with affright, but her husband, unconscious of offence, advanced to her aid, and, in the interim, Balfour, entering the room, shot him through the heart. The offender escaped, but was soon afterwards apprehended near Edinburgh, and being tried was convicted and sentenced to be beheaded by the maiden, on account of the nobility of his family. The subsequent escape of the criminal from an ignominious end is not the least remarkable part of his case. The scaffold was actually erected for the purpose of his execution, but on the day before it was to take place his sister went to visit him, and being very like him in face and stature, they changed clothes, and he escaped from prison. His friends, having provided horses for him, he proceeded to a distant village, where he lay concealed until an opportunity was eventually offered him of quitting the kingdom. His father died in the reign of Queen Anne, but he had first obtained a pardon for his son, who succeeded to the title and honours of the family, and died in the year 1752, sincerely penitent for his crime. Footnote. Different countries have different modes of inflicting capital punishments. Beheading was military punishment among the Romans, known by the name of decolatio. Among them the head was laid on a kippus or block, placed in a pit dug for the purpose, in the army, without the vallum, in the city, without the walls, at a place near the Porta Decumana. Preparatory to the stroke, the criminal was tied to a stake and whipped with rods. In the earlier ages the blow was given with an axe, but in after times with a sword, which was thought the more reputable manner of dying. The execution was but clumsily performed in the first times, but afterwards they grew more expert, and took the head off clean, with one circular stroke. In England beheading is the punishment of nobles, being reputed not to derogate from nobility as hanging does. In France, during the revolutionary government, the practice of beheading by means of an instrument called a guillotine, so denominated from the name of its inventor, was exceedingly general. It resembles a kind of instrument long since used for the same purpose in Scotland, and called a maiden. It is universally known that, at the execution of King Charles I, a man in a visor performed the office of executioner. This circumstance has given rise to a variety of conjectures and accounts, in some of which one William Walker is said to be the executioner, in others it is supposed to be a Richard Brandon, of whom a long account was published in an Exeter newspaper of 1784. But William Lilly, in his History of His Life and Times, has the following remarkable passage. Many have curiously inquired who it was that cut off his, the king's, head. I have no permission to speak of such things, only this much I say, he that did it is as valiant and resolute a man as lives, and one of a competent fortune. When examined before the Parliament of Charles II, he states, that the next Sunday but one after Charles I was beheaded, Robert Spavin, secretary to the Lieutenant-General Cromwell at that time, invited himself to dine with me, and brought Antony Pearson and several others along with him to dinner. That their principal discourse all dinner-time was only who it was that beheaded the king. One said it was the common hangman, another Hugh Peters. Others also were nominated, but none concluded. Robert Spavin, so soon as dinner was done, took me by the hand and carried me to the south window. Saith he, These are all mistaken. 
They have not named the man that did the fact. It was Lieutenant Colonel Joyce. I was in the room when he fitted himself for the work, stood behind him when he did it, when done, went in with him again. There is no man knows this but my master, viz. Cromwell, Commissary Ireton, and myself. Doth not Mr. Rushworth know it, saith I? No, he doth not know it, saith Spavin. The same thing Spavin hath often related to me when we were alone. The following description of the maiden by Mr. Pennant may not prove uninteresting. This machine of death is now destroyed, but I saw one of the same kind in a room under the Parliament House in Edinburgh, where it was introduced by the Regent Morton, who took a model of it as he passed through Halifax, and at length suffered by it himself. It is in the form of a painter's easel, and about ten feet high. At four feet from the bottom is the crossbar on which the felon lays his head, which is kept down by another placed above. In the inner edges of the frame are grooves. In these is placed a sharp axe, with a vast weight of lead, supported at the very summit with a peg. To that peg is fastened a cord, which the executioner, cutting, the axe falls, and does the affair effectually, without suffering the unhappy criminal to undergo a repetition of strokes, as has been the case in the common method. I must add that if the sufferer is condemned for stealing a horse or cow, the string is tied to the beast, which, on being whipped, pulls out the peg, and becomes the executioner. Captain John Kidd, surnamed the Wizard of the Seas, and Darby Mullins, hanged for piracy. The first-named subject of this memoir was born in Greenock in Scotland, and was bred to the sea, and quitting his native land at an early age, he resided at New York, where he eventually became possessed of a small vessel, with which he traded among the pirates, and obtained a complete knowledge of their haunts. His ruling passion was avarice, although he was not destitute of that courage which became necessary in the profession in which he eventually embarked. His frequent remarks upon the subject of piracy, and the facility with which it might be checked, having attracted the attention of some considerable planters, who had recently suffered from the depredations of the marauders who invested the seas of the West Indies, obtained for him a name which eventually proved of great service to him. The constant and daring interruptions offered to trading ships, encouraged as they were by the inhabitants of North America, who were not loath to profit by the irregularities of the pirates, having attracted the attention of the government, the Earl of Bellamont, an Irish nobleman of distinguished character and abilities, was sent out to take charge of the government of New England and New York, with special instructions upon the subject of these marine depredators. Colonel Livingstone, a gentleman of property and consideration, was consulted upon the subject by the governor, and Kidd, who was then possessed of a sloop of his own, was recommended as a fit person to be employed against the pirates. The suggestion met the approbation of Lord Bellamont, but the unsettled state of public affairs rendered the further intervention of government impossible, and a private company, consisting of the Duke of Shrewsbury, the Lord Chancellor Somers, the Earls of Romney and Oxford, Colonel Livingstone, and other persons of rank, agreed to raise six thousand pounds to pay the expenses of a voyage, the purpose of which was to be directed to the removal of the existing evil, and it was agreed that the Colonel and Captain Kidd, who was to have charge of the expedition, should receive one-fifth of the profits. A commission was then prepared for Kidd, directing him to seize and take pirates, and to bring them to justice, but the further proceedings of the captain and of his officers were left unprovided for. A vessel was purchased and manned, 
and she sailed under the name of the Adventure from London for New York at the end of the year 1695. A French ship was seized as a prize during the voyage, and the vessel subsequently proceeded to the Madeira Islands, to Buena Vista and St. Jago, and thence to Madagascar in search of further spoil. A second prize was subsequently made at Calicut, of a vessel of a hundred and fifty tons burden, which was sold at Madagascar, and at the termination of a few weeks the adventure made prize of the Quedda Merchant, a vessel of four hundred tons burden, commanded by an Englishman named Wright, and officered by two Dutch mates and a French gunner, whose crew consisted of Moors. The captain, having carried this vessel into Madagascar, he burned the adventure, and then proceeded to divide the lading of the prize with his crew, taking forty shares for himself. He seems now to have determined to act entirely apart from his owners, and he accordingly sailed in the Quedda merchant to the West Indies. At Anguilla and St. Thomas's he was refused refreshments, but he eventually succeeded in obtaining supplies at Mona, between Puerto Rico and Hispaniola, through the instrumentality of an Englishman named Button. This man, who thus at first effected to be friendly to the pirate, soon showed the extent to which his friendship was to be relied upon. He sold a sloop to Kidd, in which the latter sailed, leaving the Quedda merchant in his care. But on proceeding to Boston, New England, he found his friend there before him, having disposed of the Quedda merchant to the Spaniards, and having besides given information of his piratical expedition. He was now immediately seized by order of the Lord Bellamont, before whom he endeavoured to justify his proceedings, by contending that he had taken none but lawful prizes. But his lordship transmitted an account of the whole transaction to England, requiring that a ship might be sent to convey Kidd home, in order that he might be punished. A great clamour arose upon this, and attempts were made to show that the proceedings of the pirate had been connived at by the projectors of the undertaking, and a motion was made in the House of Commons that the letters patent granted to the Earl of Bellamont and others, respecting the goods taken from pirates, were dishonourable to the King, against the law of nations, contrary to the laws and statutes of this realm, an invasion of property, and destructive to commerce. Though a negative was put on this motion, yet the enemies of Lord Somers and the Earl of Oxford continued to charge those noblemen with giving countenance to pirates, and it was even insinuated that the Earl of Bellamont was not less culpable than the actual offenders. Another motion was in consequence made to address His Majesty that Kidd might not be tried till the next session of Parliament, and that the Earl of Bellamont might be directed to send home all examinations and other papers relative to the affair. This was carried, and the King complied with the request which was made. As soon as Kidd arrived in England, he was sent for and examined at the bar of the House, with a view to show the guilt of the parties who had been concerned in sending him on the expedition, but nothing arose to accriminate any of those distinguished persons. Kidd, who was in some degree intoxicated, made a contemptible appearance at the bar of the house, and a member, who had been one of the most earnest to have him examined, violently exclaimed, "'I thought the fellow had been only a knave, but unfortunately he happens to be a fool likewise.' Kidd was at length tried at the Old Bailey, and was convicted on the clearest evidence, but neither at that time nor afterwards did he charge any of his employers with being privy to his infamous proceedings. He was executed with one of his companions at Execution Dock on the 23rd of May, 1701. After he had been tied up to the gallows, the rope broke, and he fell to the ground. But being immediately tied up again, the ordinary, who had before exhorted him, desired to speak with him once more, 
and on this second application entreated him to make the most careful use of the few further moments thus providentially allotted to him for the final preparation of his soul to meet its important change these exhortations appear to have the wished-for effect and he died professing his charity to all the world and his hopes of salvation through the merits of his redeemer the companion in crime of this malefactor and his companion also at the gallows was named darby mullins he was born in a village in the north of ireland about sixteen miles from londonderry and having resided with his father and followed the business of husbandry till he was about eighteen the old man then died and the young one went to dublin but he had not been long there before he was enticed to go to the west indies where he was sold to a planter with whom he resided four years at the expiration of that term he became his own master and followed the business of a waterman in which he saved money enough to purchase a small vessel in which he traded from one island to another till the time of the earthquake at jamaica in the year sixteen ninety one from the effects of which he was preserved in a miraculous manner he afterwards went to kingston where he kept a punch-house and then proceeding to new york he married but at the end of two years his wife dying he unfortunately fell into company with kidd and joined him in his piratical practices he was apprehended with his commander and as we have already stated suffered the extreme penalty of the law with him end of part one